I haven't always had control over the experiences that I've had in my life, but I have control over how I tell the story of them. I was thinking this is the greatest thing ever, and it is. My writing process is the same. I'm just a girl who likes to write. Oh, sometimes when you talk about the stuff that sucks, people will pay you money and you'll feel better about it, and then you can buy your Prozac. If you are waiting for permission to have a voice in this world and to tell your story in this world, then you're not going to get it. I'm Lux Alpstrom. And I'm Lee Stein. And this is The Bindercast, a conversation series featuring our favorite women and gender nonconforming writers. This week, we're talking about resilience and adaptability and how our most challenging moments can be our biggest sources of strength. So in my early 20s, I had to move back in with my parents four times. After the third time, I came up with the idea to write a novel about a young woman living with her parents. And I was waitressing and everyone was like, oh, you're writing a novel. That's so cute. Which just made me more determined to prove them wrong and like finish the novel. So I was very uh, gratified in 2012 when the biggest TV network in Japan interviewed me as the poster child of American Boomerangs. So unlike most millennials, I have never moved back home. My parents actually moved into a small apartment right after I left for college. So there literally was no home to move back to. And most of the time I feel, you know, I feel proud of that. But I'm starting to feel like maybe I missed out on some great creative opportunity. Our guest this week is Sarah Benincasa, author of two novels, DC Trip and Great, and Agora Fabulous, a memoir detailing her struggles with mental illness. As a student at Emerson College, Sarah suffered an intense nervous breakdown that left her afraid to leave her bedroom, even to go to the bathroom. She ended up dropping out of college and moving back home to New Jersey, where she began to recover and tried to process her experience. I started trying to write about it right away when I was 21, 22, when I was starting to get better, when I was learning to leave the house. You know, my parents would, would one parent would hold one hand and the other would hold the other hand and we'd practice walking to the end of the driveway and walking back. Like, that's what it was like. And I was so lucky that I had a family that was willing to help me find psychiatric care and, and take care of me. I was really, really fortunate. And so that did two things. One, it made an impression on me about mental health care in our country and affordability and things like that. Access, these are issues I'm really concerned with. And two, it inspired me to write even more. Sarah ended up enrolling at Warren Wilson College in North Carolina, where she continued to write about her difficult experiences and found that by opening up about her experiences, she was inspiring others. There were a few times when classmates, if we were writing personal essays, where classmates pulled me aside after and said, You know, I really understand what you're talking about when you talk about mental illness. You talk about depression, about anxiety, about suicide, about different things like this. You know, sometimes they wouldn't want to say it during the writing workshop. But that was the first time, I think probably in maybe high school and into college, was when I first started realizing, oh, if you write about your darkness and the things that you're embarrassed about, that can actually help other people to feel better about their lives. And vice versa, I think. Was it hard for you to open up about that initially? I think it felt almost impossible not to once I was at Warren Wilson. When I was in high school, I was embarrassed to be somebody who had panic attacks. Um, I was embarrassed to be somebody who had depression. I thought there was something really wrong with me. 
Yeah, I, I went through a long period of time where I thought I could meditate it away. Meditation's amazing. I could yoga it away. Yoga's amazing. I could, you know, I just had kind of like hippie in- inclinations. So maybe I could just grow an herb garden and just sort of like, you know, eat fresh strawberries every day and everything would be fine. And once I started to come to terms with my family's very rich and diverse history of hospitalizations <laughs> for mental health emergencies, and um, I started to get to know other people who had similar things, then I thought, oh, I have to talk about this. I think what helped me was listening to people like Margaret Cho talk about things like body issues or abuse or or sex, good, bad, everything in between. Like once I encountered people through art who were talking about this stuff and I started to feel better, I thought, oh, I could do this and then I could make other people feel better too. Oh, this is awesome. (laughs) And someone might pay me to do it one day. Awesome. This is great. It had been made clear to me you can't support yourself just by writing about your feelings, usually when you're 22, unless you're very lucky. And so I went to the AmeriCorps program in the Southwest and I taught creative writing for a year and it was a really it was really hard to teach ninth and tenth graders, but I must have liked it enough because I applied to two graduate school programs for teaching. Initially, Sarah was convinced that Western Carolina was the school for her. Not only was it significantly cheaper than Columbia, it was also near her boyfriend, who at twenty three, she was convinced she wanted to marry. But everything changed when her boyfriend broke up with her. Suddenly, Columbia seemed a lot more appealing. And though she couldn't predict it at the time, moving to New York was about to put her on a whole new path. While I was at Columbia, I met a fellow student who had just quit her job at Comedy Central, my friend Caroline. And she said, I think you should do stand-up comedy. And I said, what? Okay. So I got bit by that bug. And so what I started doing was working different day jobs in New York and media and in publishing, legal, all different things, and doing stand-up at night, but always still writing. I started to get paid to blog first, probably in about 2006. That's when I started. I worked for Nerve, and I was like a dating blogger there, or a sex blogger or something. And uh, I don't think I was having that much sex, actually, but I was writing about dating. And that's when it started. Doing stand-up gave her more opportunities to talk about her agoraphobia and ended up inspiring even more creative endeavors, one Sarah never could have predicted when she was still recovering in New Jersey. So eventually, went from doing jokes about panic attacks and stuff to doing a one-woman show called Agora Fabulous. And I traveled around the country with that, just on breaks from work. Like, instead of going on a vacation, I would take a day or two and I'd fly somewhere and do the show and come back. And that led to a book deal. And then that led to the TV pilot. But throughout her journey, Sarah's never lost sight of the challenges of writing humorously about dark, difficult topics. I think the key in writing humorously about difficult stuff is you do not mock the sufferers ever. You can mock the disease without mocking the people who suffer from it. If you want to make fun of depression, not depressed people, but depression, whatever depression, you think you're so great. Yeah, so what? So I can't get out of bed? You proud of yourself? Like if you want to be a goofball and make fun of the disease, do it. Do not make fun of the sufferers of it. If you want to, we always talk in comedy, we talk a lot about punching up. I'm going to misquote this, but it's that famous quote about like making the powerful uncomfortable and comforting the powerless, which is just a roundabout way of saying, don't be a jerk. And 
if funny things come up, ridiculous things, absurdity, contrast, if you're, as I was once in the emergency room on suicide watch, and you find yourself leafing through an issue of Southern Living magazine and going, I really need to try to make that cherry pie. Like, maybe you should talk about that. Those are the moments. Humor humor provides moments of lightness and happiness. I think of a lot of humor as laughing into the darkness to shrink the monsters that live there. And that's a wonderful thing. And when you do it well, there are definitely some upsides. Oh, sometimes when you talk about the stuff that sucks, people will pay you money and you'll feel better about it and then you can buy your Prozac. Of course, in comedy, you don't always get a positive response to your work. Sometimes you end up with an audience that just isn't interested. There were times certainly when, you know, you get on stage and it sucks and you bomb and it feels awful. But I will say that having been a high school teacher and done my student teaching in New York City public schools was great preparation for for doing stand-up. So I felt like I, I, I would take the rejection to heart sometimes when the crowd didn't like my stuff. But most of the time, it didn't devastate me. I had friends who got really devastated when they bombed, but you just get used to it. So when you bombed, was your... Uh reaction more like, oh, I need to work on making this joke better or, oh, this is just not the right audience? Because I know people react differently. It depended. It was a mix. I have to say more often, and this probably speaks to my ego, that more often I was like, whatever, this audience doesn't get me. I'm so deep. Sometimes it was just that the joke sucked, man. You know, I can see that now. Ten or nine years later, basically, I can say, oh, yeah, some of those jokes were just awful. And there were times when I did well and the jokes weren't good. But I was the same age as the people in the audience, or I dropped a cultural reference that they all loved. You know, comedy is such a mysterious art because you can take somebody who does really well all the time and put them in front of a crowd where it just doesn't work. And you can analyze it afterwards to death. But, you know, what I realized was that I just had to talk about what I wanted to talk about in the way that I wanted to talk about it. And if the audience liked it, that was cool. And if not, that was cool, too. But eventually I figured out that stand-up was not going to be my moneymaker. And that I didn't feel like – go. I didn't like going on the road. I didn't like doing shows six or seven nights a week. You know, my friend Judah Friedlander will just – does not need to, in my opinion, go and do shows seven nights a week. But he does. He loves it. That was part of his deal at 30 Rock as a performer was that he would get to do stand-up at night. And he loves it. And he's great at it. And it's his passion. And for me, it never fed me that way. What I liked was the writing. And once I realized that, I figured, oh, maybe that's where I should be putting my energy more. In the second half of our show, Sarah shares some great advice she received from Diablo Cody, as well as the story of how interviewing Jonathan Ames in a bathtub led to her landing an agent. Which actually is not as strange as it sounds. Uh, my first agent didn't find me in a bathtub, but she did find me through my poetry, which is maybe just as weird. I hope I offer inspiration out there to poets everywhere. Though technically she found my blog for my poetry, and my blog was where I was posting updates on the novel I was writing. So she asked to see the first 50 pages, and the rest is history. Okay, so I can't claim to have a book deal. I'm not fancy like you and Sarah. But I have had multiple agents express interest in trying to get me a book deal. And those have all just been through, like, real random things. Uh, The first one was when I was 24. And Gothamist did an interview with me. And this agent saw it. And he was like, hey, 
you should write a memoir about your time in indie porn. And I was like, yes, I should. And I felt so fancy because we were getting lunches and doing all these adult things. And I did write that book proposal. We shopped it around. It did not sell. And ultimately, I'm glad because I don't want to be defined for the rest of my life by something I did for a few years in my late teens. So a couple years later, I met a different agent at a party. And he was really into the idea of me ghostwriting a popular adult star's memoir. And I was into that one, but unfortunately that deal never came through. And though we talked about doing another book, it just it wasn't even interesting enough for me to even finish the book proposal. But, you know, enough about me and my failure to launch a book career, guys. Let's get back to Sarah and how she's turned her struggles into success. Do you feel like the experience of performing in front of a crowd and kind of dealing with um, so jokes maybe not working? Oh, yeah. Which is, is, it's not like someone says, I reject you. But when you hear silence, so that lack of affirmation, I mean, that's a pretty strong signal that you're being rejected. Do you feel like that helped you uh, in freelance writing? Yes, totally. Absolutely. Because should I ever get actually in front of an editor, it makes me less nervous about meeting with someone. Generally, of course, as a freelance writer, you're pitching people via email and they've never met you. But my time in comedy taught me to self-promote and it taught me to make connections and network online and offline. And yeah, I mean, I've been ignored by entire groups of people and huge expensive clubs. So it's all right if somebody doesn't want to publish my, you know, think piece about my feelings, about my butt. I'm going to be okay with that. Like most of us who make our living freelance writing, Sarah's got a whole system set out for pitching. So when I am pitching on a regular basis, it's, you know, a few times a week I'm pitching different places. When when I'm focusing on, I've learned that I can't write as much as I would like to for places like Playboy. I love writing for Playboy.com, but I just can't take on as much as I'd like to when I have a, a book due or a big project due. So I think a lot of freelance writing is learning to manage rejection and learning to manage time. There's very few ideas that are just specific to one outlet. You know, when I write for Playboy, sometimes it's specific to them, but it's not like I'm writing, I'm not writing about the bunnies or I'm not writing about that kind of thing. So that would obviously be very specific to them. I don't have anything that's really specifically on brand for them. So most of the time I try to write for different places and, you know, you get to know the editors that you like and, and the ones who like you more importantly. <laughs> and you also get to know places where you're going to be micromanaged and there's going to be so many edits that it's not going to be worth the fee that you're getting. There's one place that I will write for sometimes. I've always loved it. I've been a fan of it for many years. And the money isn't good at all. Money sucks. But it makes me feel happy to have some work in there. And so that's why I work there. It feels good to see it. There's other places that I would not read (laughs) if I weren't writing for them. I always try to do work that I feel good about. But that doesn't mean that, as you know from a life in media, it doesn't mean that we love everything about the place that we're writing for. So which is worse for you, getting an immediate rejection or just not hearing back at all? Not hearing back at all. Immediate rejection is cool. If I pitch something to one of my editors at Playboy, they've got different people on different beats, of course, and and they go, nope, not for us. Doesn't feel right. No, there's no there there. That's really funny. There's no there there. I'm like, what does that mean? Okay. But I get it. That I just, I really appreciate. I, I mean, it's 
kind of like dating. I would rather somebody go on a first date with me and go, I don't see you going anywhere. You're really cool. Have a great life. Wish you the best so that I can grumble about it and be pissed off and get over it. Then just lead me on. You know, that's pretty much how I feel about my career, too. I went through this period where I was, like, so used to rejections just being silenced. I was so used to being ghosted by editors that I actually got hurt by forthcoming rejections because the second I saw an email, I was like, oh, they must like the idea. (laughs) And you're like, no! I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. This is terrible. One thing that I do, what I tell, um, because I also teach writing. I take on private students. Um, I used to teach with a school, which was really fun, and now I take private students on. And one thing I tell my students who are trying to do personal essay is I say, give it a couple weeks. So you send it in. If we're talking about you're submitting to a magazine, their reading time and lead time is going to be longer. But let's say you're submitting to ladiesarecool.com. <laughs> so, you know, you pitch them uh, on a Wednesday and you wait to hear from them till the following Wednesday. If you don't hear from them until the following Wednesday, sit with it for a minute, decide what you want to do, and then probably on Thursday follow up. Hey, I pitched last week. Would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, I'm here. Here's my info. If you go another week and you don't hear from that editor, they're not interested. And so web moves pretty fast. I mean, I feel like it's in a lot of these places, it's safe to say if you don't hear within 48 hours, it's over. But that that can be really misleading, especially if there's some a place that gets a ton of submissions and they just have a long lead time. So usually I think an editor will check in and go, haven't gotten a chance to see it yet. But, you know, if you haven't heard from Modern Love in six months from New York Times, by all means, you know, move right along. A lot of places will tell you, which is cool. I appreciate the places that are very straight up about their submissions guidelines. And look, we read on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays. If you don't hear from us, time to move on. It was Sarah's freelance writing that connected her to the agent who eventually landed her her first book deal, as well as her second and third. Though the way they initially connected wasn't exactly what you might expect. My agent, Scott, approached me before I started doing the one-woman show. In 2007, I interviewed people in bathtubs for Nerve.com. I interviewed Jonathan Ames in a bathtub. My agent saw the video because it was getting passed around to people. And so he reached out and said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I was like 26. And I was like, have I ever thought about it? Of course. I have. I'm, of course I need to write a book. I guess it took until I was I was 26 then. It, we, we worked together over the years figuring out pitched a couple books that didn't we didn't sell them and that's something people should know too if you want to write a book sometimes you pitch stuff and no one will buy it and that's totally okay i think i pitched like a sarah palin joke book i might have pitched one other thing and then we sold the book when i was 29 so three years after i started trying to sell something we sold the proposal for agora fabulous and that is something that people should know that if 10 agents say no to you you can send it out to another 10 you can keep sending it out Or you take a break, work on something else. Like just because people say no to you at first doesn't mean they're always going to say no. And if somebody ever writes to you and says, this isn't right for me, but I would love to see more of your work, that's not crap. People don't say that unless they actually do want to see more of your work. It's not a guarantee they're going to buy it. But if somebody ever says that to you, I'd love to hear stuff in future. Usually they're not just being polite because They get such a volume of submissions, they don't have time to be polite. How do you decide, oh, I got rejections, that means this is bad or just not going to work, or I got rejections, it just means it's not the right person? I'll give you an example. So I wanted to do a book. (laughs) This was recent, actually. Um, 
I wanted to do a book called the, what did I want it to call? I wanted to call it the Tao of Beyond, the Tao of Bay. And I wanted it to be all like taking, <laughs> this is so sacrilegious, but taking philosophical sayings from the Tao Te Ching and mashing them up with Beyonce lyrics. <laughs> kind of like Kim Kierkegaardashian, which is my favorite, one of my favorite Twitter accounts. So this is my idea, you know. And so I kind of, we, we, we tried to put something together. I think we went out to a couple places with it. They were like, no. And it's a great idea. Don't get me wrong. It belongs on every Urban Outfitters coffee table everywhere. But the truth of the matter is, getting those photo rights would suck. <laughs> like I was going to be photos and then words and man, would that be a pain in the tuchus. You'd have to get all wire. It's just basically logistically, it was going to be a headache. It was going to take too much time. And it was just like, Ugh. so sometimes you scrap stuff because I don't think the idea was bad. I think it's a really fun idea. I love the idea, but it was just logistically going to be a pain in the ass. I had a book rejected. I submitted, I, I wanted to, usually with a fiction book, you have to write it first, usually, and then you send it around. That's not always true, but it's usually true of the first book. So I had this one fiction book that I wrote that I was really excited about, and it got rejected and rejected and rejected. And finally, I just put it in a drawer, metaphorically speaking, and said, okay, this isn't its time right now. That's fine. The first time I tried to write Agora Fabulous, I was about 23, and it was like illustrated, and it was very free to be you and me, and it got rejected numerous times, and it just wasn't the time. The time was seven years later. One of the best things you can ever do with a project, if you're frustrated or it keeps getting rejected, is to put it aside and walk away and come back no fewer than 24 hours later, and it might even be six months or a year later, and check it out. I mean, so much about writing careers is, like, shrouded in mystery. And there's definitely this idea that, like, oh, you write a successful book, and then it's easy. Yeah. And I, I, think, <laughs> rich. I think we need to talk more about how even after you're established, even after you've accomplished whatever, like, signpost of success, you still deal with rejection. You still... It's not like there's a red carpet rolled out for no. you and everything you want to do. Oh, no. I mean... So I work with Diablo Cody. She's the executive producer on my pilot. And then Ben Stiller's company, Red Hour. They're the, they partnered together, making a lovely marriage. Not a real marriage, you guys. To, uh, to executive produce my pilot. And so... You know, I thought, oh, my God, you know, I had never done anything in Hollywood before. So I thought, oh, wow, this is a total dream team slam dunk. Like, I'm going to go in there. Diablo's in the room. We're pitching. She won an Academy Award. Like, they're just going to be like, here's all the money. But we went to, I think we went to a couple networks, two or three, that passed on it before we landed where we are right now. And that was a great lesson because sometimes you have something awesome, but it's just not right. I mean, Again, I bring it to dating or romance. I think I can think of any number, combination of my friends who are just amazing kick-ass people who would not work well together. And it's no one's fault and no one's a bad person because of it. They just wouldn't fit. And that happens in business a lot, too. Sometimes you're just not the right fit. How has it been, like, adjusting to TV writing and learning all that? It's, oh, so fun. I feel like I'm in, I feel like I, I didn't study this stuff, so I feel like I'm in grad school but I get paid to do it and I get writer's guild health insurance and just learning from Diablo, learning from wonderful woman, Debbie Liebling, who runs Red Hour television side, learning from Mason Novick, who's another producer. We've got a bunch of people learning from the folks at ABC Studios we've been working with for a few years now. It's just been really great. And, you know, right now we're working on hopefully adapting one of my other books as a film. 
And I don't think I would have that opportunity if, you know, Diablo and Mason and Debbie and ABC Studios hadn't said, yeah, let's work together on this TV thing. It's been a very old-fashioned, like, oh, you want to be a stonemason? Come, I will teach you. I am a master stonemason. Like, that's how I feel my training has been with writing, with screenwriting. It's been really cool. And it wouldn't be a complete TV writing experience without a whole bunch of pitch meetings. Or, as Sarah puts it, convincing men. And recently I had to go convince some dudes that I could do a job. And I called it my convincing men tour 2015. And I just went and spent a long time in conference rooms convincing dudes who were very cool dudes. Thank goodness. At one point I brought candy. Like I really did the hard sell. I was like, listen, I'm the gal for this job. And, you know, I got the gig, which is great. But you do a lot of convincing people. I mean, so much of this, being a writer, whatever medium you're in, I don't care if you're a technical writer or whatever you're in, freelance full-time, is convincing people that you can do the work. So, so much of it, I think, is self-promotion. It's confidence, faking it till you make it. So it's very important to be able to get into a room with people and say, no, I'm the person to do this. You don't have to drag anybody else down or criticize other people to do it. You just say, no, I am definitely the person. And if you need a little more inspiration to help you believe in yourself... I always like to tell this story really briefly. I just think it's great as a woman writer. I think it's applicable to whether you're a person of color, you're a person of size, you're a queer person. Like in whatever way you are, quote unquote, different from the majority of straight white males who I love. I'm really into you guys. Tweet at me, email me. You're great. Really proud of you. You're doing wonderful work uh, sometimes. So in any way that you're not like the norm, right, to be a successful business person in America, a straight white man. <laughs> so in any way that you're different, I think this applies to everybody who has ever thought, oh, I don't fit the mold, whatever it may be. And, and so I'm inadequate or I need to apologize for myself or I need to make everybody in the room comfortable with me first or something. I was talking to Diablo when I the first time I met her. She's like, okay, so you wrote this great book. I love it. We want to option it. We want to make it into a TV pilot and we want to make it into a TV show. So what role would you want to have? She's like, would you want to be on camera? Do you want to be off camera? And I was like, well, first of all, this is so funny. I was like, I don't think I'm ready to be like a showrunner, which is so funny because that's the person who runs the whole writer's room. And I had no, and she was, she started cracking up. She's like, yeah, I mean, I think you're probably not 100% there. I was basically like, I don't think I'm ready to be president yet of the country. I am now though, hire me. But I said to her, I was like, well, Diablo, do you think, you know, it's a book about my life and about my like nervous breakdown and stuff. Do you think that it would make people feel awkward or uncomfortable because it's a story about my life and my mental illness? Do you think it would be awkward or uncomfortable to have me be a writer on the show in the writer's room? Because in my head, I was like, what if I, me being there made people feel weird? And she looked at me and she said, Sarah, if you were a man, would you ask me that question? And I, I was just blown away. And I said, no. And she said, I never want you to say that in front of of anybody ever again. (laughs) And I was like, okay. And so I'm saying it now because it was such a great lesson. You know, she was just very like kind and straightforward. And she said, of course you should be in that room. This is your voice. This is your story. Yes, of course you should be there. Think of it that way. And 
I have so many friends who've said, oh, they won't like me because I look like this or I, I have this accent or I come from this place or I'm nervous because, you know, they've probably never worked with a gay person before or whatever the situation may be. And I always relate that story because she's such a great example of somebody who, you know, I mean, former stripper from the Midwest who would have said, oh, yeah, she's going to definitely win an Academy Award at age whatever she was, 28, like baby town. She really fought hard for herself and she worked really hard. But even with all these amazing experiences, there's still a part of Sarah that longs for a day job. You start to miss human interaction, and damn, that regular paycheck is nice. You know, it feels real good when you get a check that, oh my gosh, look at this. This this is a check for for $5,000, and you feel like, I'm rich. And then you don't get any more checks for six months, (laughs) and it's kind of hard. So, Lee, I... I think I speak for the both of us when I say that quite a few of us can relate to that one. Uh, yeah. To keep up with Sarah, follow her on Twitter at Sarah J. Benincasa. And don't forget to pick up her latest book, DC Trip, available wherever books are sold. The Binder Cast is a production of Out of the Binders, Inc., a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to advancing the careers of women and gender nonconforming writers. For more information about Out of the Binders, go to bindercon.com or follow us at bindercon on Twitter. This episode was hosted by Lux Alptrom and Lee Stein and produced by Jennifer Lai. Our theme music is Ready to Go by Miss Eves and Quiche. Many thanks to Seth Lind. In an upcoming episode, we'll be talking about collaboration. And in the spirit of teamwork, we'd love your help to finish this episode. Record a voice memo on your smartphone about the times that you have collaborated as a writer, whether that means working with an illustrator, working with an editor, or actually sitting down in a group and working as a team to write a project. You can send your recording to info at bindercon.com. That's I-N-F-O at BinderCon.com. We're looking forward to hearing all your tips.